Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer, and it's awesome to have you listening to our fifth podcast. Faison and I talk about the current bearish sentiment of the market and how exchanges and coin teams can better communicate with their customers. We talk about how exchanges can add predictability to their platforms through API versioning and how coin teams can flag important news they need to share with their coin holders. We also start a new segment called Big Drama in Small Cap Land, where we dissect the persistent drama in the world of small cap crypto coins. This week, we talk about Zoin's new lead developer not having development experience and SumoCoin, a strange tale of missed opportunity. Between market and technical talk, this episode is a good mix of all the things we love about crypto. Hey, everybody, you got Quantlera here, Vikram speaking, and we also have Faison, also known as The Wizard. Hello. So how's it going, Faison? What are you up to? Uh, I'm good. I uh, just got back from... About 10 days in Toronto, just visiting family. Awesome. What about you? Yeah, I was in, uh, did a little bit of travel myself last week. I was in DC and Baltimore and finally back in town. Feels good to be in New York. It's a nice summer. Nice. Yeah. So uh, one thing we were interested in talking about today, so we'd start off with just high level commentary on, on the state of the market. Since the last podcast, pretty much everything has taken a big hit. Bitcoin was in the 7,000, 8,000 range, and now it's in the 6,000 range. Ethereum's taken a big hit too. And I think there were some concerns about there being a big hack, like another exchange had gotten hacked. But after there was some SEC commentary last week, uh, where an SEC commissioner came out and said that Ethereum and Bitcoin are not securities, I think that was a bigger bigger news for Ethereum than it was Bitcoin. I think some everyone had assumed that Bitcoin would never be categorized as security. Yeah. So it was a pretty big deal for, for Ethereum. And it popped a little bit the day of the announcement. I think maybe 8 10%, something like that. And then afterwards, it sold off. You know, I talked to a couple, uh, talked to a good friend of mine. He's an investor in the space. He had asked me, aren't you surprised that it hadn't popped a, a bit more? And yeah, I don't know. I think it points to there being a pretty strong bear market right now. There's not much in the way of good news that's going to be pushing a lot of these coins. We saw Zcash get added to Gemini, and that's and now it's given back that whole trend. It popped at 30% or something like that the day it happened, and then now it's sold back, yeah. back to where it was before. But yeah, it's pretty pretty bearish. You know, on, on Twitter too, you see just general sentiment. When I traded stocks, you could kind of get a pretty solid view of stock sentiment based on what people were talk, saying about it on, on Twitter. And it's even more so with crypto. You can very quickly, I mean, people get in pretty nasty matches with each other when things aren't going so well. So where everyone is kind of like praising each other back in December, January, I think people are very angry at each other. You see people leaving, you see you see all kinds of crazy threats. So I don't know, oh, wow. the state of the market right now just seems pretty pretty negative. And are you finding that that's the case moving you know, beyond some of the big currencies to even the ICO market and token market? Yeah, I think so. I think there's there was a whole lot of exuberance around ICOs before. And that same group of people, I think they feel like they've gotten burned by a lot of these ICOs. So yeah, you see, 
the reason that the Ethereum ruling was a shock to people is kind of related to that. Basically, what you see is professional investors buying a stake in a token, uh, probably at a very uh, depressed price. You know, say I'm just going to make these numbers up, but say they buy them at five ten cents, and then the coin company ends up getting their token listed on one of these exchanges, and they start, you know, they maybe it starts trading at twenty. 30 cents. So already that's a ridiculous return for the initial investor. And the only people buying these tokens are the retail crowd now, or the people that really wanted to be involved in the ICA, but couldn't get involved. Maybe some of them. So I think people are realizing that something like that's happening and things like that are happening. So I get the sense that there's a lot of negativity and skepticism around the space. Probably should have shown up sooner. we are also seeing more regulatory action from all the agencies, at least in North America, where before I think a lot of ICOs were going on un, unimpeded. Now some of the earlier ones are being called out. And so maybe there's just a little more trepidation around what is a legitimate versus non-legitimate ICO. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably fair. I mean, we we discussed this last time too, when we went to that CoinList event and we met with those lawyers. You know, what does it mean for us to do an ICO? Like we don't want to necessarily do one in the US because we don't know what the regulatory environment's like. That probably has spread to other companies and also other other retail traders as well. So yeah, the overall state of the market is just pretty pretty bearish, pretty negative. That's fine. You know, these things, if Bitcoin and other coins trade like commodities, you see stuff like this all the time. Oil has gone through peaks and troughs since day one. So once activity picks up again and and you see these coins start to have a little life. You see like the best of breed coins starting to gain, gain traction. I think that'll be a sign of when uh, things will pick up again. One thing that's a little different though versus other bear market cycles is that you know a lot of these teams have raised capital. So they, they have capital now. And if they manage their treasury okay, meaning they didn't store it in their token 100% or you know didn't store it all in Ethereum, they have actual dollars to spend on uh, additional feature development, uh, additional marketing and and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see like a year from yeah, now. They should be able to weather a pretty substantial bear market if they did, if they're not just holding in their original token. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned uh, to me earlier today that uh, Square got their bit license. So this is, uh, this is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, a pretty big deal. You're seeing markets rally a little bit on it. So I think Coinbase and Gemini had been a couple of the firms that had the bit license. New York is known to not hand out this bit license that, you know, gratuitously. So the fact that Square got it and the fact that the Square app is uh, pretty sweet to use, the Cash app, and the fact that Jack Dorsey, founder of Square and Twitter, has been very vocal about Bitcoin, has given this mini market rally some legs. I think that because it'll be easier now for New York residents to buy Bitcoin in the Cash app, I think there's some view that that'll probably be good for Bitcoin. Yeah, because I mean, looking at you know Coinbase and Gemini, they they were new entrants primarily for the purpose of buying and selling cryptocurrencies. Whereas Square is pretty established both for money transfer, but also as a point of sale for merchants. And so I think that's a big deal to have not just a place to buy Bitcoin, but potentially being able to spend it or Bitcoin or other currencies without having to. Uh, you know, someone like a Coinbase going have to find merchants to. Uh... Yeah, I th- I think that's totally right. The fact that we could we'd be able to use uh, Bitcoin for Square and Cash type of transactions is pretty pretty good. 
Yeah. So I think you were mentioning too, another, uh, we were talking about Coinbase, uh, and so they decided to list Ethereum Classic. Yeah, they did. And that's any new listing on Coinbase is always a big deal because they list so few coins, but they're one of the main channels in which people, at least in the US, move fiat into crypto. So any new listing usually results in, I think, a pretty an increased amount of interest in that in that uh, coin. So adding Ethereum Classic is a big deal. What do you think are the, like, there must be some political ramifications with having both Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Yeah. Uh, so Ethereum had forked into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic um, after the DAO hack last year. Basically, the, the two sides were Ethereum Classic side said, you know, we don't want to be part of the DAO hack. The victims in the DAO hack wanted to get their funds back. And the problem with that is if that that sets some kind of precedent, anytime there's some kind of hack and some funds are are lost or stolen, it gives the victims some right to recourse. And so the Ethereum Classic people said, hey, look, this is we want Ethereum to be uh, totally decentralized and uncensorable. So the fact that you can recover funds through uh, for the DAO hack means that some kind of censorship. Although the motives are good, like you, you don't want uh, people's funds who are stolen to be you know, totally left on the sideline, but just philosophically, they're two different views. So the current state of Ethereum right. is that they don't want it to become a precedent. So they're going to, you know, not let the slope get slippery. I think that's the, the road they're going to try to take. As far as political ramifications within Coinbase, if you held a decent amount of Ethereum uh, through the fork, in Coinbase, and the same thing happened with like Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, you want to be able to get access to that Ethereum Classic in the same way that if you held Bitcoin through, I think it was August 2017, uh, you wanted to get access to your Bitcoin Cash. Um, and it could be pretty significant because I think like when Bitcoin Cash started trading, it was like, you know, $2,000, $3,000 per coin. So same thing with uh, Ethereum Classic. There were a bunch of people holding it, uh, holding Ethereum. So wanted to make sure that they would get their Ethereum Classic. My guess is Coinbase had to do that for uh, legal reasons as well. And another player who's pretty bullish on Ethereum Classic is Barry Silbert through his digital currency group. This is a company, I think they're based in New York, and they offer index funds for accredited investors for different crypto assets. So if you don't want to buy Bitcoin directly, you can buy it through his fund. And so they launched a Bitcoin fund. They also launched an Ethereum Classic fund. I think they have a Zcash fund. Uh, they actually just recently launched a Zencash fund. Uh, Zencash is kind of is a is a privacy layer coin that is looking to. Uh, I mean, it's pretty small. It's like maybe a hundred million dollar market cap. Uh, they have these things called super nodes coming out this summer, and those will be basically like master nodes. Anyway, so he uh, he's been pretty vocal about Ethereum Classic. So I bet he probably probably played some kind of role there too. Shifting gears a little bit uh, into some more technical topics. So, you know, with our uh, platform that we've been working on, uh, one of the things that we do is track the APIs of a lot of these exchanges to try and catch uh, any meaningful events, listings, delistings, wallets sometimes go down, uh, that sort of thing. And we've been seeing some interesting behavior from both, uh, I believe it's pronounced ZAIF, uh, Z-A-I-F, and uh, Cryptopia, who are based out of New Zealand. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's been happening with their API? 
Yeah. So Zafe is Japan-based, Cryptopia is New Zealand-based. We're not calling those two out specifically. It's just we see a lot of exchanges do these kinds of things. We watch these exchanges for, uh, as you mentioned, ex- listings, delistings uh, while it's going offline, going while it's going on automated status. And you can usually get pretty solid uh, trade ideas out of this. And if you care a lot about a, a particular coin and you see that you have some important trade coming up and you see that a wallet's going to be offline at a particular exchange, you want to get your coins off that exchange and get it to a new exchange if the trade is important to you. You see coins doing airdrops and things like that, and often an exchange will shut down uh, trading in that particular coin. So you don't want to miss out on a trade just because you didn't know that the wallet was offline or whatever. So one thing we've noticed with uh, Zafe and Cryptopia is they're making some modifications to their API, which makes it difficult to know what is going on. And what I mean by that is, so Zay, for example, was they were adding these pairs of tokens that don't actually exist. It sounds they're like, it looked like they were kind of test tokens, you know, made up names basically. And these don't exist, but our system was picking them up as being added or removed. And they would happen regularly, you know, every, as often as we check these APIs. So that, that was a little suspicious. So we decided to look into it and the, it, we can fix this. You know, we can just ignore uh, the particular names of these the pairs so that it doesn't cause an issue on the platform for the users. But the exchanges typically don't have a standardized way of delivering price data to users and also this the status of a wallet to users and so forth. So they're all a little different. Cryptopia was also changing their API response format. So our system was picking up things that had changed uh, when they actually hadn't changed. And for those more interested on the technical side, you know, some of these exchanges will send back 200 responses when they're in error or they'll, or they'll send, uh, they won't send error messages when they're successes, but just their format of how they respond to your API requests can often be just totally out of uh, sync with how it should be done. So, you know, I just thought this was interesting uh, from the perspective of how exchanges might architect their price data a little better and their status of the coins that they host a little better. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Because especially as, as more and more capital is flowing through these exchanges and they're more critical to people, just op- financial operations, standardization and predictability is, is really important because you don't want to be surprised by a wallet going down or a coin being unavailable if you have you know a big trade you've put on or just a lot of capital on a given exchange. So I think it's just part of the market maturing where some standards and then predictability is going to have to come to a lot of these APIs. Yeah. I mean, what kind of standards do you think would be good for this kind of use case? I mean, off the top of my head, I think, you know, most of these exchanges are showing the same stuff like price data, bid ask spreads, that sort of thing. So just standardizing the format would be very useful. Right now, the other thing is everything is... uh, like you don't know when an exchange is going to change their API format. So just simple things like having versioning, um, having clear timelines of when API changeovers are going to happen. What it looks like is happening is for some of these small exchanges, they're doing a lot of trial and error in production. So I think as they grow, they're going to have to shift to just having more established procedures around uh, having multiple environments. So you're not rolling stuff into production until it's like thoroughly uh, tried and tested and really, especially not experimenting with any sort of test data because you don't want people making financial moves based on something they thought was really happening. Right. When it wasn't. 
And I think a lot of these APIs also, they're available as a, you know, REST APIs. You can hit them on a given interval. But if you look at, you know, exchanges in the traditional markets, they have various ways via either socket, there's the fixed protocol. Because they're streaming so much data, they have to be able to stream it to you in something much more efficient. And so I think we'll need to see these exchanges providing data feeds that are a little more, they're easier to consume, like large amounts of data. But these are all solvable problems. I think a lot of the exchanges are very new, especially for the amount of capital they have moving through them and their team size. So we'll see it mature. But in the meantime, I think it's good to just be wary of, even if you see an exchange that has a lot of coins, uh, it's doing a lot of volume. It may still only be a year and a half old company with a handful of developers and some of the teething pains that come with that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned versioning earlier. So typically, you know, as you worked with different kinds of software teams, different kinds of management teams, I'll probably echo what you just said. You know, maybe, you know, some of the, some of them do see the importance of versioning your API. A lot of them don't. And yeah, you know, it takes a little bit of work to version your API. You got to set it up. And then when you actually migrate to a new version, that's a good deal of work. You got to let your users know you have a whole bunch of stuff you need to do on the back end. What are like, what are your thoughts on that? What are some ways to handle that versioning well? Yeah. So I, mean, it, I think uh, there's a continuum. On one hand, you just make changes whenever and just push it to production. And, you know, that's something like a small startup where the person that's working on the front end and the back end and there's no third party users of the API, that's perfectly fine. On the other end, when you have something that's a critical piece of software, and I would argue exchange pricing information and especially like order execution stuff is, you know, about as critical as it gets, at least in financial markets, everything needs to be predictable. Like that's the key. You can't be surprised. So versioning in terms of frequency, I think it just depends. I think in these early stages, it's probably okay to version on a more frequent basis, but you need to have a, a fixed release cycle and you need to have planned ahead um, what's coming next. Now, for things like uh, bug fixes, I think it just depends. If you can make a change without breaking the previous behavior, I think it's okay to roll that out sooner, especially if fixes a problem. Essentially, if you're breaking the existing behavior, you've got to prepare users for it with some lead time. Are there any open source projects you think that do versioning pretty well? Like Ember has some kind of six-week release cycle, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we use uh, Ember.js for a lot of our front-end work. And that's exactly right. So they have a six-week release cycle. They don't make breaking changes on major versions. They just uh, deprecate everything. So you'll essentially be just keep getting warnings if you're doing things in a way that's going to break. And as long as you silence all those warnings before switching up a major version, uh, everything should work fine. The other thing they do is, yeah, they release every six weeks, but then they also have a a long-term supported releases. So if you're not on pace to keep upgrading every six weeks, there's more infrequent intervals that still capture all the major updates uh, that you can follow. So that just gets back to the, they're able to make a lot of changes. Uh, Ember has, you know, evolved dramatically from when we first started using it. But by introducing that element of predictability, you can sort of choose to keep up at your own pace and what suits your suits your business. And especially in financial markets, I think that's going to be critical. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I wonder if there's some kind of corollary with these crypto teams, because I'll give you an example. I'd been staking this uh, proof of stake coin called Blocknet. This was a while back. Blocknet 
uh, basically is a decentralized exchange. And so when you stake, you, you help support some of those functions. And I was staking and I wasn't reading through the chat rooms that regularly. And when I was staking, I probably would get a payout every, I don't know, like a week or so. It was pretty small. I just wanted to see what staking was like. And uh, I thought that would be a good bet to try out. So get a payout once a week. And then, you know, I, I think I went on a vacation and I came back and I saw that I, I was getting payouts like every 10 minutes. And I thought, wait, something has to be wrong. There's no way that my machine is doing this. There's no way this is, is possible. So I went back on like their Discord, looked into it. And it turned out that they had actually, there was some fork that happened in between, at some point between when I had left and when I checked the uh, the payouts. So if I hadn't looked into it and if I just let it running, I was basically mining the wrong chain and no one was mining that chain. And as a result, that's why I was getting all those payouts so regularly. Stuff like that. Like, I wonder if there's some way to be able to support, because uh, you can't expect non-technical users to follow what's going on exactly all the time about these different coins. Like a wallet has to update automatically or they need to be known. They need a better roadmap of when these things are going to happen. Um, I guess that gets harder if there's like a tax on a coin because those aren't predictable. Those would just happen randomly. Yeah, the in, like instances of like that of what happened to you, that, they have to become the exception rather than the rule or relatively common occurrence before I think a lot of bigger institutions will feel safe like putting serious amounts of money into these sorts of things, especially on behalf of, say, uh, customers. Yeah, and even if they, even if there was like a services business you could build to help institutions uh, stake their coins, run masternodes and things like that. I mean, one would argue it's it's a it's a great thing for a, a platform that sends out alerts to alert on uh, for a given portfolio. So maybe we will see this roll out in the next uh, version yeah. or two. <laughs> so there, there's a little section that I wanted to try out, and we can try this out and see how you know how people like it. It's called Big Drama and Small Cap Land, and basically, <laughs> there's always something going on in the small cap world. There's two coins that I wanted to highlight over the last couple of weeks. It's just been really interesting following these stories. One is called uh, Zoin. It's, uh, it's a fork. Uh, the ticker is ZOI. It's a fork of the Zcoin protocol. It's a small cap privacy coin. It, they introduced masternodes kind of recently, like in the last few months. Uh, pretty solid returns, 30 to 40%. And it was run by a, a really solid lead developer, Jackie Boy. Uh, I think that was his GitHub username. You'd always hit roadmaps, always hit deadlines. They had a really nice looking desktop wallet. He sounded like he had a really solid understanding of economics too. And on top of all this, he was super available in his chat. Um, you could just ask him questions directly and he would and he would respond. So a couple months ago, they announced that they're going to be doing an airdrop for all the current holders of Zoin for a new coin called Nix. And Nix is a coin that enables privacy around uh, atomic swaps. Basically, you can swap Bitcoin for Litecoin over the, over their privacy layer, and this is it's kind of like a master node. Uh, they call them ghost nodes, which enable this privacy layer. So, when they announced this, I mean, it wasn't a bull market; like the market is has been on a downturn since. But it had something very similar feel to Z Classic, uh, which had a monster run when they announced that they'd be forking. Uh, ZCL to Bitcoin private. Uh, it went from like a couple dollars to a couple hundred dollars in a really short amount of time. That was back when things were really bullish. So the team probably, I think that 
investors in Zoin had expected something like this, like they were hoping for like a massive run. And the reason I know this is just that's what people are talking about in their in the chat room. Like people are holding right. they're hoping like, oh, this could become another ZCL, right? So it didn't perform the way you'd expect. It ran up a little bit into the fork date, maybe like two weeks before the fork date, and then it sold off into the fork date. And it mm. sold off a ton. It had gone to 250 before the fork, and then uh, like a couple weeks before the fork, then a couple of days before the fork, it was down to 140. And right after the fork, it just got destroyed. Like it's trading at 25 to 30 cents right now. And I remember, I remember the block it was at. I decided to just pull up Cryptopia and look at the order book. Cryptopia has this f- cool feature where you can look at an order book, so you can go to a coin and see how many buy orders and sell orders they are. And uh, people typically look at this because if something has a ton of buys and not that many sells, it's, it gives you some indication that there are more buyers than sellers. Uh, a lot of this stuff's gameable, so you can't necessarily tr- trust it. Right. So you yeah. About yeah. anything that's publicly yeah. available like that. But after a fork where you know there's going to be a lot of sellers, it is pretty meaningful because then you can just go look at the order book and see like, oh, wow, everybody is, just wants to sell. And I, I think this Zoin block time is two and a half minutes. So it takes at least that to get from your desktop wallet because you ha- the, none of the exchanges supported the fork, not the fork, sorry, the airdrop. Right. So you had to actually have it on your desktop wallet at the certain block height. So the moment that block height got hit, you saw a ton of movement and people are just waiting for it. You can tell people have already just had their, they had their address ready to go with the number of coins they're going to send over and the block passes and they just click submit. At that moment, like there were a ton of orders that went to Cryptopia and it didn't sell off. In, like it took, it was funny. It took like two and a half minutes plus maybe like 30 seconds to start selling off. And once it did, it just got clobbered. So this was an interesting story to watch. The Zoin team is not really going to be involved in the, like the old Zoin team, who's now the Knicks team. They're not going to be super involved in the future of Zoin. I think they're going to stay on as advisors, whatever that means. Like, this is very vague. But the new team, uh, they joined Discord and they posted up, I think Zoin posted a link to everyone's bios. So this is stuff where it gets really interesting. So the new team just seems really green. Like if you read through their chat, I was shocked by this, but the newly proposed lead dev doesn't have development experience. Wow. Wait, at all? Yeah, yeah, at all. That's why I thought, okay, maybe he means he doesn't have crypto experience, which is totally reasonable, but still a little bit concerning. He literally does know his, his bio says he's interested in programming and has some experience with C Sharp and .NET, something like that. So that's super concerning. You had like Jackie Boy, who is awesome. Um, hit all his deadlines all the time and who's the former lead dev and now you have a lead dev that's really green and doesn't really have programming experience um, even though he says he's he's excited to learn and I think that's fine at a certain level of developer but on any software team I mean how would you feel about having a lead dev without programming experience that would be uh, that's I mean that's alarming that's not right <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous, right? Am it's I crazy? ridiculous is what it is, yeah. So, you know, in like traditional markets, shareholders can, like, they can sue leadership if there's just some horrible mishandling of the of the company, right? Do I have that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the board will get involved and hopefully take care of the issue before it comes to that. But if, yeah, they can. Shareholders can sue a company for sure. We're going to need to see some sort of 
like accountability of governance for crypto teams. Cause the way it is right now is you bet on a good team and you hope that they stick with it. But if either of those two things are n- not true, you just lose money and there's really no recourse beyond that. And I think we, especially in the ICO space, we've seen this where, you know, people raise money and then just don't execute. So it's, it'll be interesting how that plays out. Yeah. In their chat, they had, uh, I mean, they had a new channel called Meet the New Team. And then they had a, they have a voting channel where they put up things for votes. Like they put a, a few months ago when they were doing masternodes, they wanted to know if people thought it should be like 10,000 coins, 15,000, 25,000. So they allow people to vote like that. And so the latest vote is, do you want to allow this, the new proposed team to run with the coin? And the vote's open till next Saturday. So we got another week or so, but it doesn't, I mean, it looks like it's going to go through. It's like, you know, 200 votes to 20 no's, 200 yeses to like 20 no's. Well, you're in this weird situation if you're a holder and a voter, where even if you don't feel that good about the team, like a, a no vote would be even worse for the price, right? Yeah, it would look pretty bad. I mean, there's potentially, there, yeah. There's, there's only 200 people ish that have voted so far, and there's definitely a few thousand in the chat. So, you know, maybe that those voting numbers will pick up. But this is the other thing about, you know, teams. It's tough for teams to like get people to involve themselves in the in the coin. Like, how do they give solid updates to users? They they can't really. But yeah. in general, like you said, that teams need some better basics, like understanding economics and how coin supply affects coin values, how like you need a solid lead dev to run a project, no matter how good that project is. that's just true. That's just true. Period. Outside of crypto. Yeah, outside of crypto. That's just true. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter who they are. Like they need to, they should have cut teeth on some project, right? You can't like not have any programming experience. You got no computers. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see, yeah, we'll see how that turns out. I'm a little surprised that the team, like some people are saying this was an exit scam and I don't like, it doesn't seem like it would be just on, based on what the other, what like Jackie boy and the rest of the team were like. I don't, I didn't get that sense from them. Yeah. It could just be like, what's the quote? Never attribute to malice what you like, what can be attributed to incompetence or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good quote. I think that that's, that applies to a lot of the, what you see in crypto is people go in with good intentions, but just they can't execute, especially at the bar that's set for the amount of money there is. Right. And but, I guess you see a lot of that in, in like broader software too. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely. So the funniest thing on top of all this, this is a privacy coin. So, you know, like we talked about before, it's not like you just, you have a private coin, it's private for life. You're going to constantly be making changes to it making sure different attack vectors get sealed, like new attack vectors will come. You'll have to deal with those. Like it's just insane to have a non-technical person be the technical lead. Yeah. Agreed. The second coin you had mentioned, uh, was, uh, Sumo. Yeah. Sumo coin. So this was a, a Monero fork. Um, Monero is another big privacy coin. So the team came across my radar back in winter after I saw Kevin Rose. Um, this is founder of dig mentioned it at one point. He didn't say to buy it or anything. He just said, these are the coins I'm watching. So the other coins, I think I'd already looked at, and this was a new one. It's small and it's a, it's a micro cap. So I thought I would take a look at it. Seemed interesting. Like it's a mission structure. Basically the idea was like they wanted a, a predictable s- supply schedule and a mission schedule that would theoretically make the devs incentivized to keep working on it. 
So they had a pre-mine, but the pre-mine wasn't available immediately. Like it would be available in like little chunks. Like there's like a vesting period kind of, right? And so I took a look at this one and I don't like this one was insane to me. So they had a chat room. My first experience with the coin was going to their chat room. And their chat room was run by a PR team, like none of the devs, I think. I mean, it's hard to know at this point because everyone was so pseudonymous. Uh, it's hard to know like who was saying what. But right. the PR team, like the, one of the first thing I noticed was they were hitting on women who joined the chat. Like if someone, oh, wow. yeah, if someone joined with, uh, with a, like a woman's avatar, they would just start commenting on it. It was, it was pretty bad. So the PR people, that, like a couple of them got called out by it. By a few other members who were like, hey, guys, you can't do this. This is ridiculous. Like, what are you? Are you in kindergarten? Like, what's the deal? So that was the first thing. And then they talked a ton of smack about other coins, including like Monero's lead dev. Twitter's name is Fluffy Pony. Uh, (laughs) um, They're talking a bunch of smack about him. And then Kevin Rose, I think, had tried to get in touch with the developers on the project and they didn't respond. So initially he was going to feature the coin in a newsletter and he decided not to because he was like, hey, look, I can't get in touch with these guys. I'm not going to promote this coin if it's if I don't know like who who's actually behind it. And so the PR team, they started calling him Kevin Gross. Like his last name is Rose, R-O-S-E. They just called him Gross. Right, right. Like, what is this? Like, how old are these people? Yeah, that's it. And then to top all of this off was I think they antagonized enough of the Monero community that a bunch of the people on the Monero team found license like problems with the license that they were using. So it was a fork of Monero code. And one of the the requirements of Monero code base is that you give proper attribution. And they hadn't, like they hadn't updated, it was like really minor. Like they hadn't updated some dates and they hadn't done a few other things. And around this time when that happened, I guess they got their GitHub repo pulled from GitHub. Like they got a DMCA notice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then this, it, it got, you know, it was down a whole bunch just on that. Um, and then the the chat got really active. People asking, like, what's going on? Like, why are we doing this? Why are we antagonizing these people, et cetera? And I would like to cut you off just to point out that we do catch all these DMCA notices on our platform as well. Yeah, we do. And they're great indicators of there's a major problem if a team's uh, team gets one. Um, right. We saw with like your coin is just no, you're not on GitHub anymore. That's a big big deal. Yeah, and if it's because of a license issue, that's a big problem. I mean, if you you're on top of your stuff, you should be aware of all these things, especially as an open source contributor. Right, and this is one of the situations where it's often not incompetence, but actually fraud, where people will just copy something with the intent of doing some sort of a pump and dump or that sort of thing. Yeah. So that happened. And then I, you know, I was asking a bunch of questions on this too. And then boom, I got banned. For, for just asking. Yeah. Just for asking questions. Like, no, I, I wasn't given a warning or anything like that. I just got banned from the Telegram chat. Why are you spreading FUD? <laughs> yeah. Basically, that was it. <laughs> I was spreading FUD because they asked them what the status of the GitHub repo was. So, okay. All that happened. And at that point, it's like, okay, this thing's really weird. Like, I have no interest in being involved in this anymore. And then some time passed and they brought on a new uh, developer, this guy FireIce, who was the XMR stack miner developer. And he was supposed to help build them an ASIC resistant algorithm. And for some reason, they wanted to rebrand the coin uh, from Sumo coin to Ryo coin, R-Y-O. And that, that mm-hmm. didn't make a whole bunch of sense to me. 
at this point, you know, after everything that's happened, it's very obvious that this is just some kind of fraud. And then we found out that there was a big fight between FireEyes and the lead developers at SumoCoin. And one of the claims was that Sumo was actually led by just one person who pretended to be five different people. Oh, wow. Was it Kevin Durant? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was just, the whole thing was just a huge mess. And I think a lot of it was very predictable after the chat room uh, experience. But it's just always really interesting, like what's going on in this little small cap land. Right, because it's always just a handful of people that are involved in drama. Yeah. One of the other things that these small coins point to is just communication problems with their coin holders. So this is something that we alluded to earlier today. So one thing our platform does is it aggregates a bunch of the things that coins end up doing. Like when a coin updates their blog, we deliver that to our users. When the coin updates their GitHub repo, we deliver the latest commits to our users. So as you admin chatter on Telegram, because a lot of times that's the first place news comes out. Right. So admins are saying interesting things on the, in their chat. Um, We deliver that to users. So you can very quickly know what's going on a project by just, you know, going through our feed. And I was on Twitter this weekend and we got into a Twitter conversation with a user, not so fast, one of the true OGs of crypto He's been around for a while. Really awesome. It's a, he's pseudonymous, and I think for good reason. Like he doesn't want people to know who he is exactly for for safety purposes, just for opsec. But you know, he's very open with his his theories. He's a big miner. He's not a big trader. He he does a lot of this like spec mining. You set up a few rigs, and when a new coin hits Bitcoin talk, you just mine it, and then move on to the next coin. And you can make pretty significant gains over time as these really small coins finally get onto exchanges. Because most, most coins, when they launch, they aren't on any exchanges. So I was pretty thrilled to just chat with him. Um, he was basically looking for something that was very similar to what we do. So instead of you know looking at Medium and GitHub, what he was looking for was a way for coin teams to directly push their updates to users themselves. So... You know, we have these features. Uh, we have a feature uh, called Analyst Alerts where we push human-generated content to users. So it's kind of similar to that. But um, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think that's a great idea because, in you know, in one of our earlier podcasts, we just talked about how public companies have reporting requirements and ways they have to communicate with investors. And as crypto coins and tokens become more popular, they're going to have to do the same thing, especially as more institutional money comes into the system. And right now, there is no platform for doing that. Uh, Some people are on Telegram, some are on Discourse. Uh, You see a lot of stuff just happen on Twitter or the Coins website. And I think as an investor and both, as both a coin manager or an investor, it would be nice to have one place you could go to and see all of the official releases for your the coins in your portfolio or as a uh, coin manager, be able to publish in one place and potentially have it syndicate to a handful of platforms. Yeah. I can see that having a good use to me during the whole block net thing where I was mining a dead chain because a good UX is a user gets pushed the important stuff. Right. Uh, rather, rather than going out to look for it. And if, especially if you can classify them as, as certain types of events, like pending fork should be like a, big red flag. Like that's something you absolutely need to know about right away. Whereas something else that's more minor could 
carry some sort of different tag and doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not as urgent, but it would be great if for like my portfolio, I could be pushed all of the stuff is by urgency. Right. I don't know if you, you watch the uh, office, but there was that uh, woof where you get like a fax and a text and an email and a, Oh yeah. <laughs> something like that I think would be a great UX. Yeah. That, that's what we need to do. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of what we're working on, I think, our initial thought was that we would primarily have internal analysts pushing out uh, information as we find it, but some sort of a syndicated feed, you know, from whitelisted users could actually be pretty useful. Right. Right. Because you have coin teams, you have exchanges, traders, miners, miners have to care about these forks. People who are staking need to care about any changes in the, on the staking side. There's really a, a lot of uh, a lot of people that could get a ton of value from this, and you also have to be able to trust the information. Like, it takes a while for at least for me. To, if, like, if you're looking at a new coin, figure out who the players are and who you need to be listening to. So, just if there was a service that, like, if it was a platform and those people were vetted, that goes a long way. Because I might be on a Telegram and I see someone's an admin and they say something, but if it's a smaller coin or you know a bad team like some of the coins we discussed previously you don't know like the, the credibility is necessarily there right so having a platform where if anything's being published on it there's a level of credibility i think that's valuable yeah yeah the credibility is important there you see that with even a lot of these uh news feeds out there uh, that are crypto focused it's pretty obvious that they're biased and i wouldn't be surprised if some of them were being paid by different coin teams to promote whatever agenda. Like this morning I saw a, I'm not going to name who it is, but I, I saw a news article come through and the, the title was something like, see how useless the lightning network is question mark. And it, it looks oh, wow. like it's coming from somebody legit by the name of the, the name of the news provider. And you read through it and it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of actual FUD around the lightning network. And yeah. I, you see stuff like that, you know, uh, again and again with different news platforms. And presumably if if a coin is giving information to its holders, its miners, its ecosystem directly, uh, you know, that can be treated as a source of truth. Uh, it's kind of like the investor relations department of a stock, I guess. Right. Yeah. So I think we're, we're coming up on time. That was a really interesting conversation and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Yeah. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com, that's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. Thanks. Thanks.